On May 28, 1959, a new exhibit opened in New York's Museum of Modern Art. It was called The New American Painting as Shown in Eight European Countries, 1958 to 1959. I'll just be calling it The New American Painting. This exhibit, as the full name might suggest, had recently returned from a tour of eight European museums. It was a showcase of abstract expressionist art from the avant-garde New York School, highlighting the work of such artists as Willem de Kooning, Robert Motherwell, Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, and Grace Hardigan. In the official program, a hundred-page book published by the museum, the introduction begins with this message, which neatly summarizes the intended mood of the exhibit. Of the seventeen painters in this exhibition, none speaks for the others any more than he paints for the others. In principle, their individualism is as uncompromising as that of the religion of Kierkegaard whom they honor. For them, John Donne to the contrary, each man is an island. One of the key things the exhibit organizers wanted attendees to understand was that these artists were individuals, and that their art was therefore only possible in a system that focused on individualism. Throughout its European tour, abstract expressionism was contrasted against the official style of the Soviet Union, socialist realism, and used as a tool to illustrate the supposed freedom and individual liberty in the United States. America was so free, the thinking went, that they would let you make art that looked like that. The new American painting was secretly funded and organized by the CIA through its public-facing puppet, the Congress of Cultural Freedom, a mammoth organization that gave grants to artists, published 20 widely read magazines, held dozens of conferences, and operated in over 30 countries. The new American painting was just a small piece of the massive cultural Cold War that the CIA fought at home and abroad, impacting practically every major artistic field, including painting, literature, music, and film. I'm going to take this and next episode to talk about two of those, painting and literature. This week, I'd like to talk about how the CIA weaponized modern art and some of the pitfalls in abstract expressionism's relationship to politics. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 119, Art and Artifice, Part 1, The Long Leash. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. So, to understand the context for the factors at play here, we need to know two separate histories. We need to know about the art history of this era, what abstract expressionism represented, its origins, and how art relates to politics during this period. We also need to know about the history of the CIA up until this point. What other activities were they engaged in, and what were the precursors to this program, which came to be known in typical sinister CIA naming convention as Operation Long Leash. For the art history, we've got to go back to the Great Depression, and the CIA was only founded in 1947, so we're starting with the art. To put it simply, Abstract Expressionism is an outgrowth of the post-World War II modernist movement, which touched all artistic fields and, in general, placed a heavy value on irony, individuality, the subversion of preceding artistic trends, and a supposed removal from politics. That last one, 
The fact that modernism distanced itself from politics is obviously going to be a huge factor in this story. This quote-unquote apolitical aspect of modernism came about as a reaction to the art of the Great Depression, which was, by and large, very political. The Depression shifted the American consciousness towards the poor. People became interested in the lives of the least well-off, which at the time seemed to be an ever-increasing proportion of the country. Artists of all stripes responded in their work by writing plays, taking photos, composing songs, and more that attempted to perfectly capture the essence of the common man. The individual was out of style, and in an age where millions of people became radicalized very quickly, it's easy to see why popular art took on this new political role. I know literature is next episode, but the proletarian novels of the 1930s are a great example of this. Writers like Henry Roth, author of Call It Sleep, and Mike Gold, who wrote Jews Without Money, drew from their background in the tenements and slums of New York to craft powerful social novels that depicted poverty in a truthful, if somewhat stylized way, and presented an honest view of the crushing nature of American poverty during and before the Depression. Proletarian fiction, though, is somewhat of a special case, as proletarian authors were usually members of the Communist Party themselves, and explicitly used their literature as a platform for communist ideals. After the establishment of the Popular Front in 1935, which I'll talk about in a bit, the genre essentially disappeared. Aside from communist novelists, Artists throughout this period and throughout all mediums gained political consciousness, some of it genuinely held, others simply sensing the temperature. Art throughout the Depression, in a number of novel ways, began to focus not on the individual, but on the group. The people, if you will. This can be seen in the choreography of Busby Berkeley, who used dozens of identical dancers to make complex shapes and patterns. It's in the murals of Thomas Hart Benton, whose epic work America Today consists of average people going about their lives. It's in the photography of Walker Evans and Margaret Bourke White, who became known for their photographs of sharecropper families and the destitute of the Depression, respectively. It's in the literature of John Steinbeck, where people are swept up by powerful forces which they are helpless to resist. I could keep going, but I imagine you get the point. Art in the 1930s became especially political. I feel like at this point I should talk about the relationship between art and communism in the 1930s, because this is going to come up again later. So the official stance of the Communist Party of America at this point, one shared by the Soviet Union, was that art should be overtly political and be used as a vehicle to promote the ideals of communism, in this case, world revolution. This is where that proletarian fiction comes in. These were novels that had an overt pro-communist message. Amusingly, Mike Gold only joined the party partway through writing the semi-autobiographical Jews Without Money, his main character waits until the very last page to wish for a revolution of the working class. This hard line from the Communist Party of America alienated some artists on the left, who nonetheless wanted to engage in social commentary, but balked at the requirements the party sought to impose on the creative process. This stance changed in 1935, when the Communist Party formed the Popular Front, which was an alliance with democratic socialist, liberal, and New Deal groups against fascism. After this point, CPUSA attempted to portray communism as a patriotic thing, a new Americanism for the 20th century. 
though this change allowed the Communist Party to court more widely known liberal cultural figures like Steinbeck, it produced official art that was not well received or widely liked, generally being panned for its cloyingly saccharine sentimentality and uncanny patriotism. The Popular Front would collapse in 1939, and the Communist Party of America eventually became, then as is now, a hive of government agents. In non-communist art history, the spirits of art in the Depression had been on an upward swing ever since the inauguration of FDR in 1933. Some of the most refined examples of activist art, like Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, were created at the end of the Depression, before World War II began and the strong strain of social commentary and art was abruptly smothered by intense patriotism. At the end of the war, when America had no more need for a wartime culture, the old sentiments of depression art seemed incredibly dated. Straightforward social commentary was not only out of style, but times weren't bad anymore. America had emerged from the war as one of the two remaining superpowers, reaping some of the greatest rewards from the war while suffering the least damage. There was no need for the collectivist art of the 1930s. The faith that the Depression had so severely shaken in the capitalist system had been restored, and then some. The response of the art world was to reject the artistic ideals of the 1930s, including much of its overt social commentary, and in every field strive to separate itself from the years before the war. Clean, uniform skyscrapers of glass and steel replaced complicated towers of art deco. Novels that emphasized individual subjective experience replaced ones with grand social commentary. Popular songs of protest were replaced by light-hearted music essentially produced on an assembly line. Most relevant to this episode, of course, the American regionalist painters of the 1930s, artists like Thomas Hart Benton and Grant Wood, who tried to capture the essence of America and the common man, were supplanted by abstract expressionists like Jackson Pollock and Mark Rothko whose work, as we've already discussed, was considered the pinnacle of individualism. Though Pollock and others began painting in this new style as early as 1940, it wasn't until the 50s that the New York School was really heralded as the future of art. That brings us pretty much up to speed on our art history for this episode. So, what about the CIA? Well, Almost immediately after the agency was founded in 1947, they created a program called the Propaganda Assets Inventory. It was a global network of over 800 publications, newspapers, magazines, journals, and more, that the CIA could use to steer public opinion on any number of issues. CIA agents affectionately referred to it as Wisner's Wurlitzer, after one of the agency's founding members, Frank Wisner. As to them, it was like a jukebox. You pressed a button and heard whatever you wanted, anywhere on Earth. In 1950, they established the International Organizations Division, which not only funded the Congress of Cultural Freedom, but, among many other things, deeply subsidized the animated adaption of Animal Farm. Through the CCF, the CIA actively collaborated with museums, wealthy individuals, and art foundations, often with their explicit knowledge of CIA involvement, in order to organize art shows that highlighted the abstract expressionist New York school. While the Soviet border states, and Russia itself, were the recipients of art exhibitions directly organized by the State Department, these were overt uses of art as cultural currency, and did not pretend to be innocent non-political exhibitions. 
Long Leash, on the other hand, was conducted entirely in secret. The Congress of Cultural Freedom, a powerhouse in the art world, would not be exposed as a CIA front until 1966, after which it came under the stewardship of the Ford Foundation, which is pretty much like CIA front adjacent. But anyway, while many museums and high-level participants were aware of CIA involvement, it was imperative that the artists did not know themselves. Even though their work was seen as the apogee of individualism, many of these artists were on the left themselves. There was evidence, for example, that Jackson Pollock had ties to communism. Now, this is interesting. Because here you have the CIA, whose mission statement is essentially to destroy communism by all means necessary, going to excessive lengths to promote art made by painters on the left. Now why is that? Well, as you might remember, one of the core traits of post-war modernism was that it stayed away from politics and activism. Instead, it focused on art for the sake of art, in pursuing some deeper truth about art and beauty through producing pieces that were not meant as commentary, but a continual experimentation with form, composition, color, and material. The fact that these artists did not project an intended political meaning on their work did not make it apolitical. It just meant that the CIA could assign it an interpretation all their own. While most Americans during this time hated modern art, seeing it as a degradation of American values, the CIA correctly assessed that it was not a threat. Because it was art that stood for nothing, it could be made to mean anything. Throughout the 50s and early 60s, the CIA exported these paintings abroad and used them to highlight the individual freedom in the United States, which they contrasted against socialist realism, the official style of state-sponsored Soviet art since the early 30s. Like I talked about earlier, the Soviets at this point believed that all art should serve a political purpose, which necessitated state involvement and sponsorship of the arts at a massive scale. At a governmental level, this manifested itself in the creation of the Ministry of Culture, which coordinated cultural production across the Soviet Union. The existence of such a governmental body was an object of ridicule by Americans, a clear symbol of the government's involvement in art and culture. To Americans, an obvious indication of the USSR's supposed lack of freedom. The question is, though, is there any real fundamental difference between the Soviet Ministry of Culture and the Congress of Cultural Freedom, outside of the fact that only one concealed its relationship to the state. In both cases, these bodies are powerful tastemakers with massive reserves of money and cultural output at their fingertips, yet one pretends to be apolitical when in reality leveraging so-called apolitical art to the benefit of the status quo. Even the left leadings of the artists themselves could be weaponized, served up as proof that in America, even leftists could be successful, provided that their art did not challenge the state. There's an intense irony in the American government weaponizing art to show how in America they don't weaponize art. That leaves us, though, with the final question. What does this mean for abstract expressionism? Has it forever been tainted by CIA involvement? Was its emergence and ensuing popularity entirely manufactured? What does it mean to enjoy these paintings today? 
Well, I think that certainly its relationship with the CIA does somewhat tarnish the reputation of abstract expressionism. It doesn't mean that we're not allowed to enjoy that art. There are a multitude of causes for the emergence of the New York School, which can clearly trace its roots back to the Dadaist and Cubist movements of the early 1900s. So it still would have emerged as an artistic subgenre without the help of the CIA. They simply took advantage of a rising trend in art and manipulated it to their own ends, turning clueless artists into priceless propaganda. In the end, this shouldn't make us dislike abstract expressionism but rather help us understand the harsh limits and really serious vulnerabilities of art that claims to be apolitical. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, subscribe, tell a friend, or tune in next episode and learn about how the CIA changed the face of literature in the United States. Thanks again for listening this week. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History. Signing off.